are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, as you can tell, it's that, that time of year. How many of you, be honest, have already, your Christmas decorations are up? Yeah, we don't like you, none of us. You're the people that like in July are listening to Christmas music getting ready. Uh, on 88.7 or whatever, 88 the river or whatever it is, you're all, by, by January, we're all sick of it. But it is that time of year where we remember the birth of Christ. And as a church, we celebrate what has been called Advent. And there's no uh, biblical holiday of Advent per se, but the church over the years has created a calendar just to have rhythms of worship in different seasons. And so the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Uh, we remember the first arrival or coming of the Lord Jesus. Not because it's just like, oh, we get to remember that. Because Advent is not just about looking back. It is about looking forward to not just his first arrival, but ultimately his second arrival when he comes in the clouds. That's what Advent ultimately is about. It's looking back so that we look forward with anticipation and expectation. And there is even some lament. I know that's not, we don't like that as Americans, we don't like lament, where there's a longing, and because we like to use credit card and get what we want now. But there's a longing to this season, even a mourning, as we wait in anticipation for the arrival of the Lord Jesus. And so the next four weeks, we're going to be celebrating and remembering Advent. There's a different theme every week of hope or love or joy or peace that hopefully we'll be able to kind of wrap our arms around and and remind ourselves of that. Jesus brought those things at his first arrival, but ultimately we'll bring them at his second arrival. If you were here with us last year, we started the Gospel of Matthew at Advent last year. So it's been 52 weeks in Matthew, um, which is a long time. Um, But we started with with the narratives of his birth. And we really, for, for the last year, have been looking at the first arrival. We've been looking at the life of Jesus. Right? And, and the heart is that we would be longing for him to return to set up his kingdom. We're gonna take a break from Matthew. For, for a couple of weeks, we'll come back to it uh, in, in the new year and look at that last week of his life and Lord willing, f- finish up around Easter of this year. Uh, but what we're gonna do is something different. We did it a couple years ago and I think it, we enjoyed it and it was fruitful, so we're gonna do it again. This is a time of year where there's specific songs that we sing that we only bring out once a year. Uh, and, and that's a shame sometimes because some of these songs are great. Uh, but these songs are packed full of expectation and hope and some of the theology that we believe and hold to. And, and music is a powerful thing, y'all. It's a powerful thing. It's a gift from God. It reminds us of his beauty, his creativity. But it's, it's powerful. And the proof is in your, your Spotify playlist. You have a playlist, if you're like me, how many of you have a gym playlist? You have it, right? How many of you have? I have two running playlists because one of them's 14 hours, so I had to add another one. Uh, and, and I listen to those when I run. Why? Because they give me strength. Because when I'm running, there's no hills in Savannah, but when I'm running up that little like four-inch incline, I, ne- I need Survivor. I need Rocky. I need something to push me over the edge, right? Um, or you have a playlist to do housework or to sleep or to study. Why? Because there's something powerful about music that engages the heart, which is the way God created it. And what we want to do as we worship and we sing songs that, that point our hearts and our minds together to truth of who God is 
and what he has done. And so each of these next couple weeks, uh, we are going to look at a different song that we sing at Christmas because we want to connect the heart and the mind and, and ultimately look at the truth behind these songs and, and talk about hope and joy and love and peace. And, and today, the first week of Advent, we think about hope and the candle that was lit is often called the prophecy candle because it looks forward to these prophecies that, that predicted that the Messiah would come. And, and prophecy is about hope. And hope is not, I hope something will happen. I hope that the Cowboys will lose today or they already won this week. Dang it, next week I hope the Cowboys lose. It's not that. Hope in the Bible is a, a confidence that something will happen, a confident expectation of something. And the church, if anyone, should be filled with hope. And unfortunately, we are often on the other side. We're filled with skepticism or anxiety or worry or cynicism. But the God of the Bible is the God of hope. The scripture is, is written a chock full of hope. In fact, Paul says this in Romans. He says, whatever was written in the former days, i.e. the Old Testament... Uh, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, what's the result? We, the people of God, would have hope. Why? He goes on later and earlier in this chapter, he said, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, right? Uh, so that you will abound in hope. This idea of hope is, is throughout the scriptures. Prophecy brings hope. Singing ultimately is meant to bring hope. And the people of God, whether you know this or not, or whether you like this or not, have always been a singing people, all right? We've always been a singing people. Old Testament, New Testament, we are a singing people. And I know some of you are like, well, I don't like singing. That's hogwash. Because you will sing to what you value. So you go to a Georgia game and you sing glory, glory, oh, Georgia, glory, glory. You sing at the top of your lungs. Or if you're a Braves fan, you do your chop. That's your worship. Whoa, that's your work. You're singing. You will be loud for that which you value, right? And so the church has always been a singing people. And just like the theologian Buddy the Elf said, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. And that's actually true. And the singing has two components. There's a vertical component and there is a horizontal component. We sing to God. Why? Because he commanded it. Why? Because he, he values it and it shows him value and honor and you exalt him. And one of the signs that you are filled with the spirit, Ephesians 5, be filled with the spirit. What's the result? Singing. Singing is a sign that you are filled with with the spirit of Christ. And God wants us to engage our minds and our hearts so that we give value because we love him with not just our minds, with our heart and our soul and our strength. But there's also a horizontal aspect of singing that we often miss. And this is why some of our singing is weak sauce. Not because your voice is weak sauce, because that's most of you, which is why you're not on stage. But our singing is weak sauce because we don't we don't grasp that we sing not just to God, but we sing to one another. Be filled with the Spirit. 
dressing one another as psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing to each other because we're reminding one another who God is, what God has done. This is our God. This is what he says. This is what he's done. Because what we don't remember sometimes is that person that's two rows behind you was alone on Thanksgiving because someone's not there anymore. Or this person over here is struggling because they're wrestling with this this hardship in their marriage or this wandering son. And what they need to be reminded of is who God is and what he has done. And it is your job and it is my job to remind them with our hearts and our soul and our minds and our strength. Because these are our battle songs. These are our battle songs. That's what they are. We all have battle songs. I have mine, right? My eagles fly, eagles fly on the road to Vic. We sing that to remind everybody, yes, this is what we want. That's what we do here, right? And so singing is powerful and it is what God has called us to do and he's commanded us to do. And so we're gonna look at some songs so that you not only understand what you're singing, And why? But so that we'll do so in a way that engages the heart and mind and reminds us of truth and ultimately points us to hope. And today we're gonna look at one of the oldest Christmas carols, maybe the oldest Christmas carol we sing, one that is beloved. It's called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And this is a song that was written in about the eighth or ninth century by some monks. It was written in Latin, right? And it was then lost for thousand years. Till the 19th century, 1800s, there was a man uh, named Mr. Neil, John Mason Neil. I think I got a picture of old boy up there. He's a handsome lad. He's a good Anglican. I was an Anglican in uniform in the 1850s. And this is a man who was brilliant, trained at Cambridge, uh, was a master apparently of 22 different languages, which is unbelievable. Uh, and he was doing some light reading in this, this fancy book called The Psalteriolum Cantonium Catholicorum or something. <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce the, in English what he's reading. And he came across this Latin text, which was a hymn written by these monks a thousand years earlier. And so he translated it into English and it was put to the tune by some actually 15th century French nuns in a convent. And we have one of our most beloved uh, Christmas carols, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it was written of seven antiphones. And that's a fancy word for saying there's a verse and then there's a responsive chorus. It's ultimately written so that you would sing the verse and then the second chorus would come in with the refrain. And so you're singing back and forth to one another. And you feel that, right? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, blah, 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 blah. Rejoice, rejoice, right? There's a responsiveness to it. And that's the way it's meant to be. And the way this, this, this song was written, it's, it's brilliant. We don't write songs like this anymore. It's written as an acrostic where each a verse starts with a letter in the Latin that, that is a personification of Jesus. First one, sapientia, wisdom. Second, Adonai, Lord. Third, Radix Jesse, root of Jesse. Fourth, Clavis David, king of David. Uh, Orions, dayspring. Next one, Rex Gentium, the king or desire of nations. And the final verse is actually the one we often sing first, Emmanuel. And this acrostic, when it's turned around backwards, is the word arrow cross in Latin, which means I will be there tomorrow. And the way it was supposed to be done is you start singing it on the 17th of December, sing one verse a day, then the 18th, 19th, 20, 21, and on the 24th, you sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You sing the last verse, and that's supposed to be symbolic, and he's, I will be there tomorrow on the 25th. So it's beautifully written and thought out. 
But, but each one of these verses points to an aspect of who Jesus is, what he's done, not only at his first advent, but at his second advent. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through it so that when we sing it afterwards, and we will be singing all seven verses because we are not Baptists, but some of us are. Um, and we're not gonna have ladies on the third and gents on the four or anything like that, so don't worry. But we are gonna sing all seven. And I want you to know what you're singing because this, this is a lament in some ways. It is a longing. And I want you to feel it. Because you even feel it in the tune that's written, right? It's very minor. That's minor, right? And, and that's the way it's supposed to be because there is a longing to it, which is, points to something greater. It points to hope. So let's unpack each verse. You can read, I'll read them and then we'll kind of talk about where they came from and the truth behind them ultimately. First verse, O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh. To us, the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. So Jesus in this verse is personified as wisdom, which is what the Proverbs do constantly, right? Wisdom cries out in the street, hear me, come fools and listen. Right? In the New Testament, Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, is called the wisdom of God. Colossians 1, I mean, 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. That's what they desire. But we preach what? A Christ crucified. Stumbling lock to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God of God. And what this verse is longing for is wisdom return, right? Set up things far and nigh. Give us order because there is no order right now. It's chaos. The world is, is chaos. It's folly. It's running towards folly. It's running towards sin. And the cry and the longing is wisdom. Lord Jesus, come. But, but until you do, I love the second half of this verse. Until you do, show us the path of wisdom. Teach us to walk in wisdom. How many of you have made a mess of things in your life? Thursday, you opened a can of worms and started talking politics just over stuffing and it just erupted, right? Chaos, or maybe you've made decisions that brought pain. Maybe your life is just in disarray and the longing on this side of the return is, Lord Jesus, lead me, lead me. Give me wisdom how to handle this. Give me understanding of how to do this. And the beauty of our Savior is that he says to us, if any of you lack wisdom, anybody? Ask. Ask, and I will give generously. And that's the cry. You need wisdom of a decision. You need wisdom how to handle this. You need wisdom of just how to defeat this sin or this whatever. Our hope is that Jesus leads us beside still waters. That's what he does. That's the kind of savior he is. Verse two. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and all. And the picture here is Exodus chapter 19. We looked at this a couple years ago, where the people of Israel have come across the desert and they are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is rocking and rolling. Earthquakes, thunder, lightning, 
On morning, on the third day, Exodus 19 says, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And God is about to give the 10 commandments to his people. And God calls Moses. He says, Moses, come up here. So Moses goes up in the mountain and then he says, go back down and tell everyone else not to come up here. And so he goes down and he's like, hey, y'all stay here. And they're like, okay, we will not get near the mountain because they're terrified. And the verse is crying out in remembering that. Why would we think about that at Christmas? Because what we usually think about is, oh, way in a manger, sweet little baby Jesus, right? But what we need to be reminded of is that little six pound, seven ounce baby in the arms of that 15 and a half year old girl is God of God and light of light. And the only reason he he's, he's looks so gentle and humble is because his glory and power have been veiled in humanity, right? They have been veiled. He is the God of Exodus 19. And he veils himself in humanity and clothes himself in humanity so that it's hidden. But when he returns at his second advent, he will no longer be hidden. He will come and there will be awe and knees will buckle because he will come to judge the living and, and the dead. And so why do we remember that? How does that give us hope? Because I don't know about you, but the struggles of life and the conflict of life and the wrestling of just things, I need a God that is greater than me. I don't need someone who's my peer. I need someone who I can stand on his shoulders, right? When there's tension in the family, when there's financial burden, when there's cancer or sickness or whatever, I need a God who is greater than this, who stands over this and where mountains rock and roll at his name. That's the God I need. And that's where there's hope. And that's what this verse reminds us of, who he really is, who he really is, right? Verse three. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell, your people save and give them victory over the grave. Some of the verses say from Satan's tyranny, the translations. But this is a reference to the prophet Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so if you've ever, you ever cut a tree down, Right, some of you men got a chainsaw for Father's Day and you went all crazy in the backyard and you cut this, you know, you cut that crepe myrtle down or you crushed it like everyone else crushes it. And what happens after a year or six months? A little sprig comes out the side, right? You're not, you're not afraid of that little sprig. You're like, ah, that's nothing. It's just a little twig. That's the idea here. The, the seemingly in Jesus's day, the throne of David was gone. There hadn't been a king from David's loins in hundreds of years. And so that, that tree seemed to be cut down. But what the prophet says, yeah, but there's gonna be a little sprig comes out the side. And that sprig is gonna turn into a branch and that branch is gonna turn into a tree and that tree is gonna bear fruit because the son of David will return. And Revelation 5 says, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls, Right? And, and the verse cries out to this stem to save from hell and to give victory over the what? The grave. We often talk in the church about, you know, we're gonna go to heaven one day and Jesus is preparing a mansion for me, which is a horrible translation. It's not a mansion, it's a place. But we, we talk about heaven, but the ultimate hope, the hope of Christianity, 
Do you know what that ultimate hope is? It's resurrection. That's the hope of Christianity. It's resurrection because this is breaking down. Somebody already told me this morning, look at the gray in your beard, right? That's right. You see this Bible? I just got this Bible, ordered it because I gave mine to the, our missionary in Africa. This Bible has font bigger than the top level on the eye chart. It is like a 20 font. You could probably read it from the balcony, can't you? I can barely read it from here. Why? Because these are breaking down. This is breaking down. And my only hope is that when it breaks down is that one day I will be resurrected and that I will live forever. Because if my greatest hope is 70, 80, maybe 90 years in light of eternity, what is that? It's nothing. But the root of Jesse, the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And what will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. This is our hope. When Jesus returns, all those who have gone before, maybe us, will come out of the grave, given a new body, reunited with our spirit, and we will forever always be with the Lord. That is what the root has done, right? And so... For you here, why does that bring hope? Because everyone that you've lost in Christ, you will be with again forever. And that you, if you're wrestling with sickness or suffering, know that I will live forever with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That gives hope. And that leads next to the, to the next verse. Oh, come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high that we no more have cause to sigh. The key of David, a reference to Revelation chapter three, the words of the holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens, no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What, what does a key do, All right? Think about it. Keys haven't changed. Oh, well, they have. Now we have those dumb wireless things that everyone loses or leaves in the car. That's why I hate them. But a key Right? You put it in and it gives you access. And, and it, it really shows that you have authority. This is my house. I'm opening the door. This is my car. This is my office. There's authority and there's access. And it's longing for the one who has opened the kingdom to you. And we've looked in the Gospel of Matthew at the kingdom so much. Right? We've seen kingdom parables and Jesus' talk of the kingdom and his rule and reign. And he says the value of the kingdom How valuable is the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field and his joy, he went and sold all he has so that he could obtain that field. It's like a merchant who found one pearl and he sells all the rest of his pearls so he can have that one pearl of great price. That is the kingdom. Jesus opens the door and has the keys and has authority over that kingdom, right? So that we will no longer sigh. See, this world is a world of sighing, right? Some of you, after Georgia Tech drove down the field the first, first series of the game, you were like, oh, not again. And then you guys woke up. But this is a world of sighing. Boss, sickness, credit cards after Christmas, right? Taking down a Christmas tree. And, and things more serious, 
because this is a world of sighing. And what Jesus has done is he has opened keys to the kingdom where there's no more tears and there's no more sighing. And the hope is that we long for that. No more conflict, no more suffering, no more arthritis and waking up in the middle of the night and anxiety, no more depression, right? The kingdom. And the reason some of you are sighing so much is because you put all your eggs in this kingdom's basket and this kingdom will never satisfy. Your kingdom of your 401k, your career, that relationship, your health, it's, it's going sideways eventually. And if you wanna stop sighing, look to the true kingdom. Value the kingdom of the one who has the keys. Next verse. Oh, come thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits bind thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. I grew up up in uh, Pennsylvania and we would go hunting. Uh, my dad and, and my brother, uh, we would always go hunting. And, and it was freezing and I never knew why. I really didn't. We'd be sitting in a tree stand, it'd be 22 degrees. My dad was a Marine, so we had to get into the tree like three hours before the sun came up. And I always thought, why am I doing this? I'm not hungry. Uh, we have plenty of food in the cabinet and we never get anything anyway. So what am I doing in this tree, freezing? And there was no phones back then to read or anything. So you just froze. And I would long for the sun to come up so I could see because I knew soon after the sun came up, my dad would come by and we could go home. <laughs> right? But there was a longing for the light to come up to warm and, and to show us what's going on. And when Jesus came his first time, this is what was prophesied about him. John the Baptist's dad is prophesying about what John the Baptist would do. He's saying, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's what God has done. The people walking in darkness, we've read it. I've seen a great light. The sun rise happened and showed us because this world, y'all, is dark. Think about the news in the last week and a half. Murdered co-eds, shooting in a Walmart, shooting in a nightclub. Just the darkness of the world, war here, hatred here. It's dark. But the beauty of the dark is eventually the sun comes up. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says, now we have the prophetic word made more sure, that's the word of God, to which we would do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This is your lamp shining in a dark place. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Until, he says, the sun rises in your heart, the star of the morning comes. That's the idea. We wait. And the tenor of scripture is, it's right before, it's right before dawn. And we're waiting. And we're longing for what? For our day spring to return, the light of the world. Right? That's where it's going. We long for it, we pray for it. And when it happens, y'all, there will no longer be a need for the S-U-N when the S-O-N shows up. Because there will be no more night. They will need no light, no lamp or sun. Why? For the Lord God will be their light. And look at what's gonna happen. We will reign with him forever. That's what he's done. That's what he does. That's what we long for in this season. Next verse. 
Oh, come desire of nations bind. You hear this term desire of nations a lot at Christmas time. I'll explain where it comes from in a second. All peepers in one heart and mind, bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the world, the whole world with heaven's peace. So this, this desire of nations is actually the only kind of misstep in the song. Now, in all fairness, remember, this is translated from the Latin Vulgate in the eighth century, which is the only Bible they had. And so it comes out of the prophet Haggai, random little two-chapter book in the Old Testament that most of you never even knew existed, let alone had read. But in that prophecy, here's what it says uh, in chapter two, verse seven. God says, I will shake the nations. He's talking about in the last day, in the day of the Lord. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. That word treasures of all nations, the old King James, which is translated from the Latin, uh, says the desire of nations will come in. So they make it messianic. And it's actually not messianic. It's talking about in the kingdom, when the king is ruling, when Jesus is literally ruling and reigning on this earth in his kingdom, the nations of the world will bring their desire. The, the, the riches of the world will be thrown down at his feet. That's the idea. And there'll be unity and oneness. And so the title is a little off, but the rest of the verse is actually good, right? That he says that we will, people will be bound in heart and mind. There'll be unity, which is exactly what the prophet Micah talks about, right? Micah chapter four, verse three. This is what the UN has over their little wall that they'll never be able to accomplish because no politician, no senator, no president, no pastor, no boss, no nobody will ever ultimately bring this, but Jesus will. He will judge between many peoples. He will decide disputes from strong nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not rise up against nation anymore, right? That's what the Prince of Peace will do when he comes because that's who he is. And if you think about current events, how divided as a nation we are, how divided in the church we are, how much hatred and strife and envy there is, we long for the return of the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, because that's the only peace ultimately we'll ever find is in him. This is why the angels said what? Peace on earth, right? Glory to God, peace among men. Why? Because we have peace with God because we were at enmity with God. Now we have peace with God. So whatever happens, we still have peace because we have God. And then there's the last verse, the one that we all know the most, the kind of climax of the, book, of the song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And do what? Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the son of God appear. So the image is an enslaved people. Were we enslaved to sin and death? Absolutely. It, it, it pictures an exiled people. Are we an exiled people? What's First Peter about? To, my, to the chosen exiles, to those who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Chosen, right? They're, we are exiled because this is not our home and we were enslaved. And what happened? He ransomed he paid the ransom. Who did? God himself. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and his, shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And they missed it at his first coming, y'all. Almost everybody missed it. Why? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many because the first advent was about paying for our sins. God himself, the God of Exodus 19, the God who spoke galaxies into existence. I saw this amazing uh, video this week of, of this uh, 
these galaxies, if you see this from Hubble, that were 671 million light years away. And God spoke those into existence and they, they existed. That God left heaven, clothed himself in the, the body of a Hebrew boy, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, innocent, sinless, and voluntarily laid himself down for you because no one came, no one could take his life away. He had the authority to lay it down and take it up and he laid his life down to you to pay your ransom, to pay for your sins, right? To free you. And what, I don't know about you, I needed to be reminded constantly that I have been freed from my sin because I continue to wallow in it. And this is why part of your rhythm as a Christian should be repentance and confession. It just should be part of the rhythm of your day, part of the rhythm of of your life. Not because, oh, if I sin, I lose my salvation. No, no, you can't lose your salvation, right? But your intimacy with God can can be hindered. And so there should be a regular repentance and confession of sin. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me right? Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That should be part of your regular rhythm. And you and I need to be reminded, yeah, you had a bad week. But even if you had a good week, you were still not righteous, but God still loves you. And you cannot make him love you any less than he loves you right now. How do you know? Because he sacrificed his son for you. He ransomed you so that you could rule and reign with him forever. That's our God. That's the God we cry to return. And so what's the, what's the refrain? What's the chorus? You know it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And you notice in the song, you'll notice this when we sing it again, but if you know the song, it's again, like I said before, it starts real minor. Right? But then when it gets to the refrain in the chorus, it turns to a major chord, right? If you play guitar, you know this. It turns, rejoice. It's, 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 a, it's positive. It's like, I know it stinks, but I can rejoice. Why? Because God will come. And two big ideas that this song reminds us of and the reason we have hope. Ultimately, number one, God is with us. I know that we say that and we're like, yeah, I know that, but I don't feel that. And, and, and I know that there's a tension there. But you need to be reminded, CBC, that wherever you're at and whatever you're going through, that God is with you. And not in some like looking down from heaven, like, yeah, it looks pretty bad down there. Don't worry. No, it's just not some abstract thing. He, right now, the Lord Jesus' spirit is here, dwelling in his church. And that is why when you sing in a few minutes, it is a special thing for you to say rejoice. You're telling everybody here rejoice and you are saying, I am rejoicing. Why? Because I believe that Emmanuel, who is here, will return physically one day, the second person of the triune God. That will happen. And that's the second reason we we worship and we rejoice because he will come. He said he would. Now it may be in five minutes and it may be in five million years, but he will return one day, you will see him. I know this seems so abstract. I know you're watching, some of you are watching The Chosen, you're like, that must be what Jesus looks like. 
I have no clue what he looks like, but he probably doesn't look like that. But he will return one day. You will see him. In fact, every eye, the prophet says, will see him. Everyone will see him. And then every knee will bow to him. But you will see the one who was pierced for your transgressions, his side and his hands, still scarred, even in his glory. You will see him. You see in a mirror darkly now, but one day you will see face to face. And here's the beauty of that, y'all. Right now we have hope and we have faith. When he returns, you won't need hope or faith anymore because your faith will be your eyes. You will see the living God face to face and you will live with him forever. And that church is our hope. That is why we rejoice. So we're gonna rejoice and we're gonna sing. Let me pray uh, and we'll do that together. Father, I thank you for those who've gone before us, who've, who've written and pointed us to the truth of who you are and what you have done. And I pray for us, wherever we are in this room today, who, struggling, thriving, uh, that our joy would be in you and that our longing would be for you. And if it hasn't been, that we would turn that now and turn to you uh, and see that you will come because you said you would. It's in Christ's name and for his glory, I pray. You guys can stand as we sing.